Morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to be back again with you. Um, welcome if you're joining us online as well. I just want to echo uh, what Amanda said. Um, next week, if you haven't been able to be back with us in person or if you haven't been here in a while, uh, mark your calendar next week. There's something about being in a baptism service physically here in the room, something that I just can't translate online. I wish we could, we just can't. Um, so I would love to see as many of you as possible back next week. It's going to be an incredible time of celebration. Um, but we're in this series, week two of Friend of Sinners. And that's actually a term that's used, it's a, a name given to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at several different stories of why Jesus is called Friend of Sinners. Um, so I, I'll start out with a question. How many of you have one of these somewhere in your property? Raise your hand if you have a fence somewhere in your property, like three of us. Okay, wow, you guys are really, you're comfortable in your neighborhoods. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's really great. Well, lots of us have fences in our neighborhoods. Uh, have you ever considered the pros and cons of fences? F fences are, are put up for different reasons. Sometimes people put up a fence to keep things out. Uh, other times people put up fences to keep things in, like dogs or kids or something like that. Actually, in our old neighborhood where we used to live, um, one morning I wake up and our neighbor is literally putting up one of these. He's putting up a privacy fence right against our, our property line. And I kind of took it personally. <laughs> like we had little kids and a dog at the time. And I kind of felt like, man, this is kind of insulting. And I, I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, watching him put together his fence. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? You may be able to keep my kids and my dog out of your yard, but I still know your Wi-Fi password. <sighs> so there you go. Um, Sometimes we put up fences to keep strangers out of our property, but the problem with fences is that it also keeps friends and neighbors out. If you have a privacy fence, what happens is it keeps other people from seeing into your yard and into your life, but it kind of isolates you. It keeps you from looking out and seeing into your neighborhood and being a part of your neighborhood. We live right now, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that's surprising to any of you, we live in a world right now that is marked by cultural fences. We have lots of borders. We have lots of fences in the world that we're living in right now. In fact, I would say wherever there's a place of division or a place of tension, a lot of times the easiest solution in our lives is we just put up a fence. We put up a border. We say, let's figure out a way to isolate, create a demarcation line between us and them. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a passage in Luke 17. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn uh, with me there. Luke 17 is where we're going. And I, I believe Jesus wants to challenge the fences and the borders in our world. He, he wants this morning to challenge the places in our world and the places in our lives where we put up fences, those places of tension, those places of division. I, I think Jesus wants to, to challenge us in how he wants to speak into those. So we're going to begin this morning. This is Luke 17, starting in verse 11. Um, this is what it says. It says, as Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. So let's just stop there for a second. It says the border between Galilee and Samaria. Now, when we read that in our world in 2020 in America, we go, okay, whatever. I must be like crossing the state line or something like that. We don't think of it as being a major issue. In Jesus' day, this was a major fence. This was a hot spot of conflict. It was a place where there was a very clear border that had been set up because there was so much tension between Jews and Samaritans. And so go ahead, if you could, to that next slide. Uh, just to point out, it was a political border. So 
the border between Galilee and Samaria, these were two people groups that were actually governed by two different uh, governing authorities. So they weren't being held to the same laws, the same principles, and they lived right next to each other here in this area. So it was a political border. It was also a racial border. These two people groups, Jews and Samaritans, did not interact with each other very often. And the reason is because um, for the Samaritans, the history of the Samaritans was they actually were part of the Jewish nation. But what happened was generations and generations before that, the Assyrians had come in and conquered Samaria. And the Assyrians is actually where we get our word assimilate. If you've ever heard that word assimilate, that's named for the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians would do to assimilate people is they would come in and they would conquer a group of people and they essentially would breed themselves into that group of people, thus making them part of it. So by Jesus' day, in his, in his generation, the Samaritans were basically these descended half-breeds of Assyrian conquerors and Jewish women. This brutal practice that had led to these two different people groups. So there, it was a racial border here between Galilee and Samaria, and it was also a religious border. Samaritans denied that the true place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. Jews believed that was the only place that worship could happen was in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans had their own place of worship and their religion was like a mixture of like pagan beliefs and Jewish law. It was this weird kind of amalgamation of those things. And so these people did not get along. There there was this was a political border, a racial border, a religious border. Thank God we don't have borders like that in our world, right? Thank God we're living in a time where we just can't relate. But this is where Jesus is. The story goes on. As he entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Now, now in order to understand the significance of what happens here, we have to understand what the Jewish law, known as the Torah, says about leprosy. So if you turn in your Bible to Leviticus 13, all the way back in the Old Testament, it's part of the Torah, part of the Jewish law. In Leviticus 13, it talks about the, the fact that a priest was the one who actually had to diagnose leprosy. Leprosy in our world is like a non-issue because of medical advances, but in the ancient world, leprosy was this horrible, contagious disease that uh, spread all throughout. It would, it basically, it would eat away your skin and your extremities inch by inch, and, and it would kill you. So people feared leprosy. And so instead of going to a doctor or a physician like you would today, it was actually the priest who had to diagnose leprosy. And so if you thought you had leprosy, you had to go to the priest and he would use Leviticus 13 and he would say, yep, it lines up. You've got leprosy. Now, the moment a priest would announce that you had leprosy, you were declared unclean. What it meant to be unclean was that by Jewish law, you were required to live outside the city gates. You were pushed to the outside, to the outskirts of society. In fact, uh, you would go and live. There were leper colonies that would be set up usually at places like the border between Galilee and Samaria, right? Because it's not a place anybody wants to be. Nobody wants to be right at that fence, right at that hotspot. And so a lot of times there would be leper colonies that would, you know, gather at those kind of spots in Jesus' world. Now, what it also says in Leviticus 14, Jesus says, the very next chapter in Leviticus, it says, uh, if you think by some miracle you have been healed of leprosy, You have to go to the priest, and the priest is the one who has to declare you healed and clean. So when Jesus says to them, go show yourselves to the priests, 
They haven't been healed yet. They, they actually are, are cleansed of their leprosy as they go. So they have to take Jesus at his word. They have to obey him. And it's as they're traveling to the priest, they realize they've been healed of their leprosy. So Jesus here is solving two problems. He's solving the disease itself of leprosy, but he's also solving the second problem that they have, which is they've been declared unclean. And until a priest declares them clean, they can't reenter society. It doesn't matter that they're physically well. Until that priest has declared they're, they're clean, they still have to live on the outskirts of their society. So this is what Jesus does. He invites them to go, and as they go, they, they realize they're healed. Let's go ahead to the next part. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Ooh, now we're getting to the good part in the story. Jesus asked, didn't I heal 10 men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. So of these 10 lepers that, that are sent to the priest to be healed and to be cleansed, only one turns around. In fact, he turns around before he gets to the priest and while, when he realizes he's healed and he comes back and Luke saves like the punch of the story until the very end, until the, the later part of the story, he says, and this man was a Samaritan. Now, in case you're wondering, Jesus is Jewish. This man comes back, he's a Samaritan. By the way, Luke loves to tell these stories. If you read Luke's gospel, Luke was a Gentile. He was not part of the, the, the people of God, the tribe of Israel. And so he loves to tell stories about foreigners and Gentiles and Samaritans, you know, being blessed by God because that was his story. That's who he was. So he loves, this, he loves telling these stories. Now, what's really interesting here is there's something going on in the language that we do not see in our context, in, in our world. So if you notice, Jesus says, uh, he says the word heal twice in this. He says, didn't I heal 10 men, and then later he says, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. Now, in our language, it's the same word, heal. In the original language this was written in, in the Greek language, those are two different Greek words. When Jesus says, hey, didn't I heal 10 men? It's the Greek word katharizo. Katharizo means to be made clean or to be made whole. It's what he was sending the 10 to go experience. He said, yeah, go ahead, go to the priest and you'll be catharizoed. You'll be pronounced clean. You'll be made physically whole, physically well. But then at the end, when he says to this one leper that's returning, he says, stand up and go, your faith has healed you. It's the Greek word sozo. It's not catharizo, it's the, the word sozo. Sozo means to be saved or to be rescued. So at the end, it's a different word. He says, there's something different that's happened for this one Samaritan leper that's returned. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has rescued you. See, this is a picture here of salvation. It's a picture of how the gospel works in our world and in our individual lives. This man has become a follower of Jesus. He's been reconciled. He's been saved and rescued by putting his faith in the person of Jesus. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. It's, it's saved you. It's rescued you. Now, I want you to notice the progression here because Luke's trying to make a point, and, and we can miss it in our world. 
there's this progression that happens. There's 10 lepers, right? 10 lepers are physically healed. All 10 of them receive physical healing from Jesus. Nine of them go to the Jewish priest and are pronounced clean of their leprosy. When they're pronounced clean, they can reenter Jewish society. But there's one leper, he's a Samaritan leper. If he goes to the priest, the priest can pronounce him clean, but he still can't reenter Jewish society. Why? Because he's a Samaritan. Now, he happens to be on the wrong side of the border, too. He's on the Jewish side of the border. He's left his community. He can't go back over to the Samaritan side. There's no way for him to be made clean and to be into reenter society. So he's essentially a refugee. Nowhere for him to go. He can, he's been made physically whole, but there, there's no way he can be made clean and rejoin society now. So 10 lepers are physically healed, nine are declared clean and can reenter society, but only one comes back, and it's only this one that receives salvation. Only one person in the story receives the rescue that really matters in life, eternal salvation. It's only him that receives that. So he comes back to Jesus, throws himself down at his feet, and it's like, this is the only place I belong. <laughs> he belongs to, to Jesus. That, that's where he belongs at this point in the story. Now, uh, this is a picture of grace. This is a picture of how the gospel works in our lives. And so I want to take a moment, if I could, because here's what I've discovered. Most of us don't really understand what grace is. And, and I mean Christians, people who have experienced church, people who have grown up in church all their lives, people who have uh, accepted Christ even, people who have read the entire Bible cover to cover. A lot of times when you ask people, what does it mean to experience grace? What is God's grace? A lot of times you'll get an answer like, well, you get something you didn't deserve. That's what we say. And yes, that's true, but it's way more nuanced than that. So, so if I could, let me just walk through, because you see this picture of what true grace really is in this story. A lot of times what we think is grace is when an undeserving person meets an obligated giver. That's a lot of times how, how we think grace works. So imagine you're a parent and you have a child who is rebelling. They're breaking curfew, they're staying out, they're drinking, they're doing drugs, they're just breaking every rule you have. They're completely undeserving of your love and your care. What do you do? As a parent, do you disown them? Do you still care for them? Of course you do, right? Of course you still care for that child who's rebelling. And the reason is because you're obligated to as a parent. That's what a parent does. A parent cares for their child. In fact, if you decided you weren't going to care for your rebellious child anymore, it would say more about you as a parent than it would about them, wouldn't it? See, that's the priests in the story. In the story we just, we just read, you, know, you have these 10 undeserving lepers, right? But the priest, he's obligated literally obligated by Jewish law, he has to pronounce them clean. He has to help them re-enter society. See, that's not grace. When an undeserving person meets somebody who's an obligated giver, that's not grace. That's just what you're obligated, what you're required to do by law. So other times we, we think grace is, it's when a deserving person meets an unobligated giver. So I'm going to try to be as deserving as I possibly can uh, deserving of God's salvation as I can and fix up and clean up my life because God is kind of an unobligated giver for me. So imagine in this scenario, imagine there's a teacher. She's a wonderful teacher. All her students just love her. 
In fact, the, the class loves her so much that the class decides to, to pool their money together and buy her a gift. Now, as a student in that class, you love that teacher. You think she's very deserving of a gift. She's been a great teacher to you. But as a student in the class, you're not obligated to chip in for that gift. If you decide to chip in for that gift, it's because you do so because you decided to because you think she's deserving. See, that's what we think the leper in the story is, right? We think he's this deserving person until we find out he's a Samaritan. Oh, wait a minute. He's a Samaritan? He's on the other side of that fence? And and so now, that's not really grace either. When a deserving person manages to clean up their act, fix all their brokenness and their problems, and then God decides, well, I guess I'll... That's not grace either. Grace is really only in that third picture between Jesus and this Samaritan leper, and grace is when an undeserving person meets an unobligated giver. So imagine you have a neighbor in your apartment complex or in your dorm room if you're a college student, you're watching online, whatever. And this neighbor is horrible. Everybody in the apartment complex hates him. He plays his music, you know, all the way up to 11, you know, every single night, keeps you up till two in the morning. And so you decide, I'm going to go knock on his door. So you knock on his door and as politely as you know how, you say, will you please, could you please turn down your music? And he goes over and he turns up the music while he stares at you. And then he gets COVID. Mm. And so you decide you're going to take care of him. You go to the grocery, you buy his groceries for him, you go pick up his meds, you come back and you try to care for him. That's grace. That's grace. It's when an undeserving person who can do nothing to clean themselves up, to make them, nothing to make themselves deserving, nothing of any merit of their own meets an unobligated giver. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what this picture in this story in Luke 17 is trying to show us. This Samaritan leper, he can't do it. He doesn't belong anywhere. He has no hope of going back to any other community. So who does he belong to now? Jesus, <laughs> that's it. That's his only hope. That's, his, that's the last thing he's got, the last true hope he's got. That is the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us, and that's the picture that we see in this story. The priest can pronounce someone clean, but only Jesus can pronounce someone saved. And so the whole point that we start to see in this story, go ahead to that next slide if you could, is that grace, the gospel of Jesus, has this way of creating an entirely new community. When you've experienced the gospel, when you've really experienced grace as, a, as an undeserving person meeting an unobligated giver, when you've really let the, the gospel dawn in your life and the light of the gospel has penetrated your soul and you realize that you are a sinner who's been saved by grace, that not by your own merit, but not, nothing else, you become part of this entirely new community. Paul uses words like new humanity or, or new people or new community in different translations. But he, he talks about this idea that we've been made part of this new community that's been established in the person of Jesus when we come to know him as our Savior. In fact, let's look at this together. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to a bunch of Gentiles in Ephesus. They're not part of the Jewish nation. And, he, and the first three chapters of Ephesians are, is absolutely amazing because there's absolutely no commands. For three chapters, Paul just goes, this is who you are. If you can figure out who you are, you'll figure out how to do what you need to do. It's who before do. If you can figure out who you are, you'll know what to do. And so he's trying to tell them here in chapter two, 
He says, look, before you knew Christ, in those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility, the fence that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people, or some translations say one new humanity, one new community from the two groups. So so what what Paul is trying to say is, in the kingdom of God, there are not borders. In the kingdom of God, there are only people who have been saved by grace. You get that? The kingdom of God isn't a place of fences and borders. There's only people. People who have been saved by grace. People who have been invited into this new humanity. That's what we get but when we, when we receive Christ, when, when he, we come into this place, what happens is we have this shared experience with other Christians. We have this shared experience with other believers that there's no one-upping. There's no fences. There's no like, hey, I'm, I'm better than you. I, I, you know, I, I've got something that kind of makes me a little bit more holy or, or more better. We have the same experience with other Christians of coming to know Jesus completely apart from our own merit completely apart from our own bragging rights, we all needed what Jesus gave us because we were completely unable to save ourselves. There's an old spiritual, I've always loved this line. It just says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Isn't that beautiful? I love that statement. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no one-upping. No bragging rights. Because we all had to come to Jesus in the same way. We all had to be saved from our sins by his blood. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No matter what you're carrying this morning, no matter what you're dealing with, if you're watching online, maybe you watch online because you're scared to come in, in public because you're afraid, not necessarily of COVID, maybe you're afraid of what other people might sense or figure out is going on in your life. I would say to you, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So as we begin to turn this toward ourselves, as we begin to go, okay, where am I in this story? Where, where are we in this story? Go ahead to the next slide. This means you're a Christian first. That's what it means. If, you, if you've accepted Christ, if you've allowed Jesus to save you, you're a Christian first. Can I take the hammer and drive the nail in a little bit more? You're a Christian first. You are an American second. You're a Christian first. You're a Democrat or Republican second. You are a Christian first. You're white or black or Hispanic or whatever else second. You're a Christian first. You're male, you're female, you're married, divorced, single, widowed. You're all those things second. You're those things second. You're, you're a Christian first. This is why, uh, th- actually, th- this month, the month of October, I was supposed to be in 
Ethiopia and Ukra with a team from Frontline. They're actually serving coffee out there uh, this morning. Um, one of the first times we've been able to serve coffee again. And it's, it's why when I go to Ukro, to Ethiopia, there's this CarePoint community there that we sponsor. We sponsor 150 kids there as a church. And so when I go there as a white American man in my 40s, I can go there and I can sit down with Serkay, who is our CarePoint director. And she is a young black woman from Africa. And we could not be more separate. We could not be more different from each other. Our worldviews could not be more different from one another. But you get us talking about Jesus. And it's like we've been friends forever. Why? Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus did the same thing for me that he did for her. And we're Christians first. When you become a Christian, you you get invited into this entirely new humanity, this new community, this one people. There's no fences in the kingdom of God. There are only people, human beings, who have been saved by grace, who've been reconciled to God The problem that we have right now in our world is that we are not acting like Christians first. We are acting like we are Christians second. And the only solution to that is to do exactly what this one Samaritan leper in the story does. We need to run back to the feet of Jesus. Throw ourselves down in gratitude and in thanksgiving at his feet and say, that's right. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. God, I am yours. I belong to you. And with gratitude in our hearts, recognize again who we are. We gotta get our mojo back as the church. We gotta remind ourselves of who we are again. There's this awesome story that Chuck Colson tells. Some of you are familiar with him from Prison Fellowship Ministry. Chuck Colson tells the story of Humada Prison. It's a prison in Brazil. In his travels with uh, fellowship, prison fellowship, he traveled to Seo Jose dos Campos, Brazil. I'm probably not saying that correctly. And in Brazil, there's this uh, prison. It's still around today. It's called Humada Prison. It's actually part of prison fellowship today. But it's infamous prison where uh, uh, inmates were actually tortured by guards. There was an isolation cell and they tortured these inmates. Uh, some of them were killed. Their violence among the prisoners was out of control and the living conditions deteriorated so badly and so much that finally uh, the government in Brazil was ready to shut down the prison. And so what happened is there were these two Christians who stepped up and said, if you're going to shut it down anyway, can we take over? Will you let us take over this prison? And so in kind of a rare move, the Brazilian government gave these two Christians control of this prison and they completely turned it around. They were the only two full-time employees to paid employees for this prison, all the rest of the work started getting done by the inmates themselves. So Chuck Colson travels to Brazil and he tells the story of visiting this very infamous prison and he walks in and he describes seeing clean living quarters and the men living at peace with one another and like biblical sayings written on the, on the walls. He can't even believe this is the place he's heard about. And his guide through this prison was one of the inmates. And so as the inmates walking him around and showing him everything, he takes him down this long hallway toward this isolation cell where all these prisoners had been tortured by guards. And he says to Colson as he's leading him down this hallway, he says, we only have one prisoner that we keep in that cell now. And then he turns to Colson and he says, are you sure you wanna go in there? 
mean, everything, look at this place. It's awesome. Are you sure you want to go in there? And Colson assures him. He says, listen, I've been in isolation cells all over the world. I've been with the worst of the worst criminals, the darkest of the dark. Yes, I want to go in there. So this inmate kind of shrugs his shoulders like, okay. And so he turns the key in the lock, opens the door, and as Colson tells a story, he walks into this isolation cell, and there's nothing in the room except a crucifix on the wall, hand-carved by the prisoners, with the prisoner Jesus hanging on the cross. See, the, the grace of Jesus, the gospel, has this way of creating an entirely new community, even in a prison, even during a pandemic, even during an election year. So, so maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online and you're thinking to yourself, okay, okay, but what about, what about my secret addiction that I haven't told anybody about? I would say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what I would say. Jesus' death on the cross was every bit as much for you as it was for me. There's no bragging rights. There's no fences. There's no one-upping. Well, what, wait a minute. What about, what about all my money problems? I, I'm still kind of keeping it under control. Everything looks good. Nobody really knows about it. What about my money problems? I would say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, wait a minute. What about my secret same-sex attraction that I'm managing to sort of keep under wraps and keep under control? My spouse doesn't even know about it. I would say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So Jesus, we just come before you right now, just like that leper returning, throwing ourselves down at your feet. And what we would say to you, Jesus, is because of what you've done for us, because of your mercy, because of your grace, we don't fit anywhere else in this world. Like Paul said, we're strangers and foreigners passing through. We're temporary residents. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so, Jesus, we come to you and we say, would you unite us as your people under the banner of the cross, under the banner of what you did for us? And Jesus, would you make us a truly one new people out of all these divisions? It's the most powerful thing. It's the most powerful message we could give to our world. It's the most powerful thing we could be in our community. And we need it so badly right now, Jesus. So we just thank you that you are truly the friend of sinners. We thank you that you truly are the one who went the distance and paid the price for our sins so that we could be made right with you. And so Jesus, we find ourselves again this morning in you. We return to you. We reconcile ourselves to you. And we ask God that you would just make us into your image more and more as we serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.